guys. This is Anthony Anthem, a.k.a. Black Fabio, a.k.a. The Midnight Marauder, a.k.a. Uh, Spud McKenzie, a.k.a. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we do have a special guest today. Would you like to state your name, kind of, sir? Yeah, my name is Tommy Moore, a.k.a. Professor of Fun, a.k.a. Comedian, a.k.a. Comedy Club owner, a.k.a. Hospital Clown, a.k.a. College Professor, a.k.a. Author, a.k.a. Newspaper Columnist, a.k.a. TV Host, a.k.a. Lecturer, a.k.a. Comedy Historian, a.k.a. Let's do this interview. A.k.a. I think he just out aka me on my own show. <laughs> this is the first. <laughs> <laughs> you out aka me. That's the first time that's happened. <laughs> I had to figure out how to reclaim my title later. <laughs> I, I I can see why you're a king. Okay. <laughs> so. Well, first uh, of all, thank you, for, thank, thank you for having me on. This is fun. Tommy, I'm excited to have you on. Um, of course, our mutual contact kind of put us together, and I was excited when he told me about you. He was telling me, like, you're a pro at comedy. Like, you're, a pro, you're just, like, all around, like, good at the art itself from what he told me. I've been doing this for over 40 years, so I better be good by now. <laughs> 40 years? How old were you when you started? Years, 40 years. Well, I mean, I've been making people laugh since I'm a kid. I was a class clown. I always got in trouble in school for being funny. I could never be straight with anybody. I mean, the teacher would say things like, you know, if you had 50 apples in one hand and 50 apples in the other hand, what would you have? I said, very big hands. I always got in trouble like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> she would say, if you have $5, and you asked your father for five dollars. What would you have? I said five dollars. She said, "You don't know your arithmetic." I said, "You don't know my father." <laughs> <laughs> I would get in trouble. She would say, "You have to read books." Do you know that Abraham Lincoln walked five miles a day just to borrow a book? I said, "Yeah." Now on his birthday, they closed the libraries. Mm-hmm. So I would get in trouble. I always got in trouble. I mean, but technically you are wrong. Am I? I mean, you got her on a technicality. I just don't think she liked being outsmarted, sir. There you go. Touche, sir. Sound like you were a pretty uh, wise kid. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, you had to either fight or be funny in my neighborhood. I come from Philadelphia, uh, West Philadelphia. It's a rough neighborhood. Oh, you're from West Philly? West Philly, born and raised. Yes, sir. West Philly in the 50s was rough. It's, it's even rougher now. But it was when I was half the people in my neighborhood were juvenile delinquents, and the other half were adult delinquents. Okay, so I mean it was it was rough. It was you would hear things on the corner. Guys would talk. One would say, "Ain't it a shame what happened to Al?" The guy says, "Shut up. It ain't till tomorrow." Wow. You know it was a rough neighborhood. I mean I remember a woman in a restaurant once saying to her husband, uh, ooh, the guy next to me has a gun under his jacket. And the husband said, so do half the people in here finish a suit. <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was a rough neighborhood. I mean, I started in the real nightclubs before there were comedy clubs. 
These were nightclubs, you know, with crystal chandeliers and uh, bands in tuxedos, and they were run by guys who think think like mafia, you know, Godfather type. Guy. I mean, these are places where they had statues with the arms broken, and it wasn't even the Venus de Milo. Just the owner broke the arms as a threat to the customers. Oh, wow. Yeah, and remember the words of Venus de Milo, who said to her mother, no, I can't call. I can't pick up a phone. <laughs> wow. You know, I, worked, I worked all those clubs. I worked, Serious story. I worked one club, and it, got, it was me and a band. And the band would do 40, and I would do 20, and we did three shows a night. And uh, a customer with no neck and a, a suit made out of chrome and a pinky ring came up to me and said, I want you to tell the band uh, to play these three songs. They all talk like that, like that's something wrong with the throat. Uh, I, want you, I want you to tell them to play uh, uh, Stagger Lee and uh, Mac the Knife and Bad Bad Leroy Brown. And I realized in all of these songs, somebody gets killed. Wow. So it's like, you know, uh, we're not going to do our felony medley for you uh, for your <laughs> pleasure. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. But that was my neighborhood. And, you know, I had to be, like I said, you either had to fight or you had to be funny. And my whole family was funny. I'll tell you a story. I had an Uncle Schnaz. That was his nickname, Schnaz. He was the funniest man in the world. He was funnier than any 10 comedians put together. They wouldn't allow him to go to funerals because he made people laugh and you couldn't mourn. It was a oh, story. gosh. It was a true story. My, my uncle's brother, uh, Jimmy, he was an inveterate gambler. He would gamble on anything. If two raindrops were coming down a window's pane, he would bet two first okay so he died it's his funeral he's laying in a coffin everybody's there crying trying to mourn it my uncle schnaz comes in and says hold it everybody hold it everybody quiet hold it he goes over to the coffin and he knocks on the coffin and he says jimmy there's a crap game in the alley <laughs> he, wait, he waited about two seconds and when jimmy didn't move he looked up and said yeah, he's dead. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so that was my family. Oh, my God. That, that's funny. <laughs> no, he, no, he did, man. That's what... He really did. He was crazy. He would do anything. He was terrific. Oh, my God. And coming from that, I mean, you know, I was just funny, and I had to be funny, and I wanted to be funny. And I'll tell you a true story. Uh, when I was a kid, and this is the minute I knew that I had to be a comedian, uh, I was about uh, five years old. And the same week, I got measles and the flu. I was sick as I just wanted to die. And uh, I remember my mother on the phone with the doctor. I had 104 fever. The doctor said, if he gets to 104 and a half, you got to put him in a tub of ice water to break the fever. Well, in those days with measles, what they used to do uh, is they would just wait it out. They, they made you stay in the bedroom, and they pulled all the drapes, 
so there was no light in the room, and you had to stay still and not scratch, and that I was going crazy. After mm. about three days, I said to my parents, please, let me come downstairs. Let me watch TV, please. So they bundled me up, and they brought me downstairs. They pushed the TV over near the couch, and there was a Margin Dimes telethon on. And on the telethon, there was a great old comedian named Jimmy Durante, and uh, a great and very funny singer, uh, Pearl Bailey, and a very funny show group, uh, the Trainers. And for a half hour, I watched him, and I laughed, and I realized while I was laughing, I wasn't thinking about my pain, and I didn't feel as bad anymore. And I said, wow, if I could ever do that for another human being, that's the best thing I could ever do in my life. Now, fast forward about five years. <laughs> I was uh, maybe 10 years old, and my uncle was in the hospital. Right. And he was very sick. And in those days, hospitals were not bright, cheery places like they are today. We're talking about the late 50s. And uh, I didn't want to be there, but my parents dragged me there to see my uncle. Okay. So we go in the room, and he's in bad shape. I mean, he's got tubes and IVs and all kinds of monitors on him. And you could see pain in his face. And I was so uncomfortable with the whole situation that I told a joke. And I made him laugh. <laughs> and for the 10 seconds that I made him laugh, I saw all the pain leave his face. And I said to myself, I can do that. I can do that thing that those comedians did for me when I was five. And I remember, I, I can picture it. I remember walking out of the hospital. And all I was thinking was, I can do that. I can do that. And that's the only thing I ever want to do with my life. And the funny awesome. thing is, I became a comedian for 40-plus years. And about three years ago, uh, in North Carolina, where we moved now, uh, about three years ago, uh, they asked me to start a hospital clown unit uh, where, I, where I would train clowns and how to be funny. And we would visit patients. To this day, the more regional hospital clowns visit about 1,200 patients a year and make them laugh and take their mind off their problems. Two stories, one serious, one funny, serious story. Uh, the mm -hmm. nurse will tell us uh, which rooms to go in, which rooms not to go in. Uh, you know, maybe they just had an operation. Uh, maybe they're on heavy meds. We shouldn't go in. Right. So we're, my partner and I, we always work as a team, uh, two clowns, uh, walk by this room where we were told not to go in. And the woman in there, obviously the patient's wife, is saying, oh, please come in, come in, come in. So, you know, we're asked to come in, we go in. We go in, and she says to her husband, open your eyes, honey, there's clowns here. And he opened <clears> his eyes, and we did our little five-minute thing. And, you know, he smiled a little bit, not a lot. He was on heavy meds, who knows, you know. So as we're leaving, the wife is thanking us profusely. And I said, well, you know, you're welcome, but, you know, we really didn't do that much. And she said, no, you don't understand. This is the first time in three weeks he's opened his eyes. <clears throat> so that's why I do what I do. Now, the funny story was we went in one room, and the patient was on the phone. And I heard her say, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I have to hang up now. Uh, either two clowns just walked in my room 
Well, they have very good drugs in this hospital. <laughs> well, so now I'm a hospital clown. But uh, I was a comedian, uh, still do, still do comedy. Uh, I was a comedian for over 40 years, and it's the best job in the world. I mean, think about it. Uh, you're a party every night. You only work for an hour. You're the center of attention. You make people laugh. You make them happy. They applaud, and then they pay you. Nothing wrong with that. Doesn't get any better than that, you know. Plus, there's no heavy lifting. I like that part. <laughs> hey, that sounds like if you found what's the best way to say it? you found something that makes you happy, and you you have like I, I feel like you have this essence of you know what if it's not broke, don't fix it. And the fact that you and the fact that you made a career out of your childhood like dream, that's something all inspiring right there. Yeah, and I was very lucky. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick story. One of the first shows I ever did, I was about nineteen years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked me to do a show in South Philadelphia, Trinity Lutheran Church, eighteenth and Wolf. And they asked me it was a Christmas show. So they asked me to do Christmas jokes. So I sat down and I wrote about uh, 20 Christmas jokes and I did them and it was good and we had fun and it was one of the first shows I ever did uh, as a stand-up comedian. I had done, I had done a lot of other stuff. I, uh, when I was like six or seven, mm-hmm. I was doing uh, puppet shows at kids' birthday parties for $5. By the time I was 12, I was doing magic shows at kids' birthdays oh, wow. for like $15. You know, but this was the first stand-up comedy show I did. And Trinity Lutheran Church, I did all Christmas jokes. And I remember saying to myself, uh, you know, I wrote Christmas jokes and I'm not going to be able to use these except for like once a year <laughs> for the rest of my life. So something told me to send them in to Mad Magazine, which was a very big comedy magazine when I was a kid. And I sent the Christmas jokes into Mad Magazine and they did a two-page spread on it. Christmas is with my Christmas jokes illustrated by Paul Coker and they sent me a check for $600 now when you're you know a 19 year old kid $600 is a lot of money and uh, I I just said to myself you know it just goes to show when you do something for God and for the church he pays you back somehow sounds like he did for you there you go there you go so let me ask so you this. Way. What do you want to know? What do you want to know? Oh, no, I got quite a few things I want to know. So, okay. okay. So, if you could say, because I, I already know your, so your uncle was your comedic inspiration, would you say? Yeah, and then all the other comedians that were on TV, because in my day, there were a lot of variety shows on TV. There was the Ed Sullivan Show, there was Hollywood Palace, there was Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas. Uh, Steve Allen, uh, you know, Johnny Carson, and they all had comedians every night, and I watched them every night. And, um, and, and the funny thing is, shows like that were variety shows. They were shows that had not just comedians, but singers and dancers and magicians and novelty acts. And, and, and I love that kind of show business, and that's what my act is now. My act is a variety show. 
In my act, I do jokes and stories and one-liners. I do props. I do costumes. I do puppets. I do improv. I do comedy magic, which means the tricks don't work, but they're funny. I <clears throat> sing along. I do audience participation. And my theory is if you don't like what I'm doing right now, wait three minutes. I'll be doing something completely different. That's what I can do. I mean, a lot of comedians today just kind of stand and talk. Um, if you remember when you were a kid uh, in school, they used to say show and tell. A lot of comedians today just do a tell. I do a show. I do visual. I do slapstick. I do a little bit of everything. You're kind of an illustrator. Yeah, yeah. It's like, not only am I the author of my book, I'm also the illustrator. I can dig that. There you go. Yeah, and I wrote three books about comedy, too. One's called Happiness from the Great Comedians. Uh, one's called Joke Telling 101. And one's called Comedians Telling Tales Out of School. And you can get them all on Amazon and Kindle. And they were just fun to write because uh, they were my experience in comedy and my experience meeting, knowing, and performing with some of the great old comedians. And, you know, you sound like a young guy. I'm going to take a guess, maybe you're 25, 30? I will be 30 this year. There you go. I was pretty close. All right, pick anything from the top shelf. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of guys your age or younger who, you know, no fault of your own, may not know the older comedians. Um, you know, I talk, I talk to guys 20, 25 and they don't know Red Skelton or Red Fox. Oh, I know Red Fox. There you go. Or Soupy Sales or Dick Gregory or, you know. Dick Gregory. I know him. Uh, Paul Mooney and um, Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Yeah. Rodney Dangerfield. But you have got, in this era, the greatest learning tool in the world. You've got YouTube. You can look at old videos of these old comedians you know, who you may never have seen first time around. People like Jack Benny and George Burns and Alan King, you know, mm-hmm. Amsterdam, Henny Youngman. You can look them up and you can see what they did. And YouTube is just the greatest, greatest tool in the world for a young comedian who wants to see what went on before him. True. Very true. Like, I'm not going to lie, my generation, it's a lot easier to access things. It used to be, you got to be there. That's right. You got to be there. Like, like some of these comedians, like, I I, I listen to a lot of comedians' podcasts and everything. And I remember somebody had said they were at this club in, I believe, Boston. And Andrew Dice Clay was performing. And he had this rival at the time, and they got into this argument or something like that while he was on stage, and dude shot the sign of the comedy club, and they actually kept it like that until, like, i say, like, last year is when they finally replaced the sign. Wow. It was like you had to be there to see it. Now, that's a heckler. When, when they shoot at you, that's a heckler. There's hecklers, but that's a heckler. I'll tell you an Andrew Dice Clay story. I owned a comedy club for 11 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we had Andrew Dice Clay. Now, a lot of people don't remember. When Andrew Dice Clay first started, his act was somewhat different. Um, 
do you know the movie uh, Nutty Professor with Jerry Lewis? Oh, that's the old school one, yes. Yeah, do you know the – okay, all right. Andrew Dice Clay would go on stage dressed as a nerd with glasses broken with tape <clears throat> and, and with pencils in his pocket and a pocket protector, and he would be very nerdy for about a minute. And he would say that his dream was always to be a cool guy, which is very similar to the plot line of uh, The Nutty Professor. Right. And then he would turn around back to the audience, take off his jacket, and first he would turn into John Travolta as Fonzie with the leather jacket. (laughs) And then he would turn into Sylvester Stallone as Rocky. And then he would turn into Andrew Dice Clay. Okay? Now, at the very end, he would turn back into himself as a nerd and say, you have to be happy with who you are. That was his original act. Wow. As a matter of fact, he had a lot of guts doing it. Um, He would go anywhere to do and at, I mean, p- places that didn't want him, places that didn't expect him. He was going to movie theaters 20 minutes before the movie or even the coming attractions would start. Huh. He, would stand, he would stand in front of the movie screen and say to the people, you're here early. Do you mind if I do some jokes for you? And they'd say, <clears> okay. And he would perform for the 20 or so people who came in early to the movie. He would go into a delicatessen, and while people were having lunch, he would say, you mind if I do some jokes for you? And he would, and that's how he got started. And he would be doing that act from a nerd to uh, Sylvester Stallone to, to uh, Andrew Dice Clay. But Andrew Dice Clay, the character, became so strong and so in demand that he cut away all the other stuff, and now he just walks on as Andrew Dice Clay and comes off as Andrew Dice Clay. Wow. So you saw him when he was in his development stages. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had him We had him at our club uh, when he was not known yet. Uh, but by the second time he came back, he was known, and by the third time he came back, he was a big star. Oh, yeah. And he was on the arenas. Oh yeah. I mean, See, I started way before comedy clubs. Way and wait. I mean, cable TV made people like Andrew Dice Clay, and even Eddie Murphy a star. I mean, Eddie Murphy was a star from Saturday Night Live, but when he got those cable specials, man, he just he just catapulted. He just went wild. But I was around. Here's a cable TV story. I was around. Uh, around 1971, and I was doing, you know, clubs around Philadelphia, and there was no cable TV yet, but they were starting a cable TV uh, test market in South Philadelphia. And uh, there was a club in South Philadelphia that was very, very prestigious. It's called Columbo's. Uh, It was the oldest, longest-running club in America. And they had big stars there. They had Frank Sinatra. They had Tony Bennett. They had, you know... All the classics. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
And there was no way a you know, 22-year-old comedian like me could ever appear there. But when they started the cable TV test market, they did it in a 12-square block area of Philadelphia. Only had 186 homes that had it. And they asked me to do a guest spot on the show. And I figured, yeah, why not? Who cares? <laughs> Nobody's going to see it. You know, 186 houses. So I did it, and somebody did see it. There was a singer named Anthony Richards who did an Elvis show. And he needed an opening act, and he was appearing at Palumbo's. So he hired me to appear at Palumbo's. What I didn't know was in the audience that night, the first night of the week, was a newspaper columnist named Len Lear, and he took out a pencil, and he started writing down all my jokes, and the next thing you know, I saw my jokes appearing in the newspaper. And now people knew who I was, and I started getting booked. And the next thing you know, I was getting booked as the opening act for every singer that I ever, as a teenager, grew up loving. I, I was the opening act for Bobby Rydell and Chubby Checker and the Drifters wow. and the Platters and the Coasters and the Dovells and Jay and the Americans and Dionne Warwick and Robert Goulet and all from that goofy little TV show that only was aired in 186 homes in 12 square blocks. So you never know. You do everything because you never know what's going to turn out to be a good thing for you. That is epic. Man, you got like the American dream story, man. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So you touched hands with probably a lot of different people over the forty years you've done comedy, man. Like Oh yeah. Like so I mean, what would you say was your favorite encounter? Well, they're all in the first book. Uh, I put about 40 comedians in the first book, which is a PhD in happiness from the great comedians. And what are in there are show business lessons they taught me that the real life lessons. Like Jay Leno taught me how to. Well, the first thing you got to do when you're a comedian is you've got to figure out who you are. Then you got to figure out what you want to say. Then you got to figure out how you want to say it. Now, in order to figure out who you are, Jay said, you've got to look at your life. You've got to look at your parents, your upbringing, your schooling. You've got to look at the things that are important to you, your values, your traditions. And that, that makes you aware of who you are so that when you walk on stage, your character is who you are. It's really important to be yourself and be who you are. Now, you know, other guys taught me things like, uh, I mean, Milton Berle showed me a great way to take a mental vacation. Because when you're in comedy, you think about comedy all the time. And sometimes, you know, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of angst. The greatest vacation in the world, Milton Berle told me, um, called The List of Tens. Before David Letterman ever did The List of Tens, Milton Berle used to say, make a list in your mind of ten favorite things under one topic. Maybe it's just ten favorite movies. Maybe it's your 10 favorite Motown songs. Maybe it's your 10 favorite whatever. And think about those 10 things, and it's a great stress reliever because it takes your mind off your problems and your worries. And I used a lot of these techniques. I did corporate shows. I did corporate shows 
uh, for anybody from AT&T to DuPont to IBM to General Motors. And I would go in and I would teach these people to just loosen up and lighten up and laugh. And I would teach them how to reduce their stress and how to see each other as human beings and not just co-workers and be positive and overcome obstacles. A story. Okay. They hired me to do a corporate show once Mm -hmm. on how to release stress. And I was supposed to be the last thing of the day. But after lunch, after the lunch meeting, the, uh, uh, the CEO came over to me and said, can you do it right now? I said, uh, okay, you know, mm-hmm. and I went on and pulled in the beginning. But after about five minutes, they were laughing. And at the end, I had them hugging each other and, you know, totally de-stressed. And I walked off and the CEO said, I didn't tell you this. Uh-oh. But you were you were walking into an ambush. The reason I put you on first is because in the morning session, an argument broke out, and everybody was at each other's throats. Oh. And I knew they were all in a bad mood, and I knew that if I didn't get them in a good mood, the day would be a waste of time. So you went out there and you put them in a good mood, and I can't pay you enough, and he, he literally gave me a bonus. But that just goes to show, you know, what humor can do, what laughter can do. When people laugh with each other and at each other and at themselves, all of a sudden they get less serious, they get less worried, they get less anxious, and they get more productive, and they get more human. It's funny, human and humor are very similar words. If you've got humor, you're human. And honestly, that's what worries me a little bit about today's politically correct uh, attitudes. Um, mm-hmm. People are getting less and less humorous. They don't, they're afraid to laugh at each other. They're afraid to laugh at themselves. And, you know, when I was a kid, everybody laughed with each other. There was a comedian in Philadelphia named Cozy Morley. He was a local comedian, as I was. I stayed a local comedian for... 35 of the 40 years, because in Philadelphia, there were 22 comedy clubs within a half hour of my house. So if I worked every one of them two or three times a year, my calendar was full. Okay. Uh, Cozy Morley was a local comedian, and he had a comedy club called the Club Avalon in, uh, in Wildwood, New Jersey. And mm. he was open three months a year, and he seated 1,200 people a night. And most of what he did was well-meaning ethnic jokes, Italian, Irish, Jewish, black, Polish, Greek. And that audience was very ethnically mixed. Again, Italian, Irish, Jewish, Polish, black, Greek. And I used to see people just laugh with each other and laugh at each other and have fun with each other because we all do stupid things. We all do funny things. But somehow today, people have gotten uh, very easily offended. Uh, they've gotten very serious. And, and it's worrisome because when you can't laugh with other people, and especially when you can't laugh at yourself, you're in trouble. Oh, yeah. I will say, like, in my generation with comedy right now, it's it's kind of... 
it's kind of a catch twenty two. There's some comedians like that are like, forget it. I don't really care what climate we're in. If it's a joke, it's a joke. It's funny. Even if I gotta give like a disclaimer, hey, you might get offended. Like it. That's something. That's actually been a major topic with a lot of comedians as of late. On what can be said and what cannot. Um, what can be said and what cannot be said. I mean, comedy's always been an art to me. I mean, if we go back to even the eighties with comedy, like we go back to Eddie Murphy's first special, or we go to Richard Pryor, we go to some of these comedians that are beloved in the comedy community. Like they said stuff that would not fly today. Like Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Don, Don Rickles is a whole good example right there. Yeah. <laughs> I love Don Rickles though. Yes. I think Don Rickles is a very funny man. He's one of the old school guys, like heck for even being his age, he still got some um he still got some chuckles. I gotta tell you that. <laughs> oh my god. Don Rickles, Don Rickles and I did a TV show together and uh, You know Don Rickles? Oh yeah, God rest his soul, yeah. I mean I see here's here's how I did a lot of T V shows when I was a young comic. They would have all these morning talk T V shows and they would bring in a big comedian like a Don Rickles or or uh, Joan Rivers, or David Brenner, and they were the big star comedians, and then they would bring in a couple of young, new comedians, and I was the young new, and so I would do these shows with them, and they taught me a lot, Don Rickles taught me, it's nothing, Don Rickles taught me patience, it took Don Rickles over 20 years to be discovered, he was working little, tiny little clubs in Miami, and, uh, and all of a sudden, Frank Sinatra's mother, who was a friend with Don Riggle's mother, Frank Sinatra's mother told Frank to go see Don. And Frank Sinatra saw him, and after 20 years of struggling, all of a sudden, boom, he clicked. And he got booked in Las Vegas, and he was all over TV. But it was 20 years worth of struggling. And, you know, Don told me, he said, yeah, I, I see these young guys in comedy take it right away, and a lot of times they give up, and it's a shame because they're funny. But if they if they don't make it in a year or two, they give up and they you know go get a day job. He said, uh, you know, the, the important thing is to hang in there until you figure out who you are, and until you let people know that you're good. Yeah, a lot Don of people call me patience, patience. A lot of people don't find their voices in comedy uh, for a very long time. Some people are doing That's it for right. a decade or more to find their own voices. Like, and as, as a matter of fact, Flip Wilson was writing a book that never got finished, and one of the tenets in his book was it takes a good 10 years to find your voice. No, Flip was right. definitely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So you knew you knew a lot of comedians, like because oh, yeah. I know with the uh, with the comedian community, a lot of them know each other somewhere down the line. Or like, oh, I know about this guy. I haven't met him yet, but I know about his comedy. Like y'all know about each other. So oh yeah, you knew a lot of the classics, man. That's well, you know, in the golden age of comedy, in the 80s, when comedy clubs were big, 
we all work with each other because at one time um, in the country, there were over 1,200 comedy clubs. 1,200? 1,200, yeah. 1,200, yeah. And uh, you would work all over the country or you would be a local comedian and comedians from all over the country would come in and work for you. And we had a comedy club and, you know, everybody came through our, you know, when they were young, we would be paying $200 a show. And these people turned out to be people like Rosie O'Donnell and Tim Allen and uh, 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 Drew, uh, Drew Carey, you know, they became wow. superstars, and we were paying them $200 a show because they were just starting out. You know, uh, I'll tell you a story. Uh, one night, a car pulled up in front of our club, and a guy came out and said, uh, can, we, can, can I buy uh, three tickets? And I said, I'm sorry, we're sold out. And he says, oh, okay. He goes back to the car. Now, this was around 1987. Wow. He goes back to the car. He comes back. He said, my feeling is that if you get us three chairs, he'll perform for free. This is in Philadelphia, an old side street comedy club. Mm-hmm. And I said, who's your friend? And he said, Robin Williams. <gasps> And we went over to the car, and we looked, and it was Robin Williams. Oh, my gosh. We found three chairs. Oh, I would have did the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So we put the three chairs up. Now, Robin was smart enough to know that he couldn't go in the room because if he went in the room and anybody saw him, he would be a total distraction. The other comedians wouldn't even be able to do their act. So we hid him in a side room. We told the other comedians, instead of doing – 15, 30, and 45 minutes each. Just do 10 minutes each. So they did 10 minutes each, and then the MC went on and said, ladies and gentlemen, every once in a while a big star comes in and wants to do a show for us, and you were lucky tonight because we have Robin Williams. And everybody went, yeah, right. <coughs> and then Robin, Robin Williams walked on stage, and they went crazy. Robin Williams did about an hour and 10 minutes, and he enjoyed himself so much that he stayed for the second show and did another show for like an hour and 10 minutes. And wow. In between, he, he clowned around with all of us. He played foosball with us. He was a great guy. But the next day, everybody I knew was mad at me because they said, why didn't you tell me Robin Williams would have been there? I would have come. I said, I didn't <laughs> know. I didn't know. So yeah, that, stuff like that happens all the time. All the time. Robin Williams. Yep. Wow. Man, that was actually one of my dreams as a kid to actually see Robin Williams do his um, comedy set. I mean, God rest his soul, but man, that that's awesome. And you know, you talk about comedians all knowing each other. Who? Here's a story. Ah, uh, not so funny, but uh, a wonderful story. Um, nineteen eighty-four. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I was in the middle of a robbery. And luckily the robber didn't have a gun, but he had a pipe. <laughs> he hit me over the head eight or nine times. Ooh. I, 
I say eight or nine because after seven, you stop counting. Uh, he hit me over the head, hit me, and uh, you know, hit me in arms, legs, whatever. And then he tied me up, tied me to a post, tied a, a noose around my neck, put a gag in my mouth, and left me there for dead. Well, before he walked out, ready to rob the place, he looked down and said, don't try anything funny. You should never tell a comedian not to try anything funny. Oh, my gosh. Also, I, had, I had been a magician, so I knew a little bit about getting out of ropes. Thank you, Houdini. And he locked me in a room. I got out of the ropes. I was in and out of consciousness. I got out of the room. Uh, ran out into the street. People saw me almost caused an accident. Uh, they uh, got an ambulance, brought me to the hospital, and put me together like uh, the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Um, a doctor and a comedy club owner came mm-hmm. into, my hotel, uh, into my hospital room and said, you know, you may never stand on stage again. At that point, I had done about 3,000 shows. Wow. I said, uh, you want to bet? I had a show four nights later at LaSalle University. I had never missed a show in my life, and I wasn't about to miss this one. So I booked three hours. I couldn't stand up for an hour. I was lucky if I could stand up for 15 minutes. Wow. And they brought me to the show. <laughs> they literally helped me on stage. And in head-to-toe cast and bandages, I did that show. And I've done over 5,000 shows since. But uh, it just goes to show that when you want to do something, you can do it. But here's what I'm saying about comedians knowing each other. When I was in that hospital bed for the three days, every comedian on the East Coast came to visit me. And they all told jokes, and they all made me laugh. And the guy in the bed next to me should have paid a cover charge. But that's when I realized for sure how important it was to laugh and to have comedy around you because it takes your mind off your pain. It takes your mind off your worries. And uh, I just thank God I've been able to do that my whole life. Sounds like you're doing it right, then, my man. Trying. You know what? I'm... This is you are actually a really cool guy. Thank you, thank you. Like seriously, it's an honor that I get to talk to you. So basically, I'm talking to a comedy legend in your own right. Like straight up, I appreciate you for that. The fact that you're giving me this time of day right now, like you're telling me like all these stories and a lot of gems in this stuff. Like, this is a blessing right here, man. So thank you for that. And you know what? Since you said the word blessing, i got to say something. I always put God in my act a little bit. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You know, the book says love God, love one another, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Judge not, you will not be judged. Forgiven, you won't be forgiven. You'll be forgiven. And uh, given, you'll receive. And be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. And that's kind of like a GPS. That's God's positioning system. Um, George Burns made a movie called Oh God. Great movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but try and look it up. It's a really good movie. And I talked to George Burns once, and he said, 
you know, it's very important when you work at a comedy club or a theater or a casino to get to know the manager because the manager can do a lot for you. The manager can smooth out some problems. The manager can make sure things go your way. A manager can be very helpful. Now, different people in different countries and different religions have different names for God. God doesn't care what you call him as long as you love him and you love one another. But sometimes I like to call God the manager. And uh, I try to stay on his good side because he can do a lot for you. It's true, though. Because, I mean, when I think about it, like, that's kind of how my life is. I think that's everybody's life. And some people don't have that realization of it. Well, maybe it'll come to them. Maybe it'll come to them. Eventually, some people got to get hit upside the head before it actually does come to them. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was one of those people. (laughs) That's how I know. (laughs) So was I. So was I. Absolutely. You know, we're all young and we're everything and we think, you know, the world uh, uh, revolves around us. And as we get older and more mature, there are other things out there that we will never know, you know. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I know something about you because I heard a little bit in a couple of your podcasts, and I know that uh, your mom and dad were both military. That's correct. And God bless them. We got, uh, we got Memorial Day coming up this weekend, and you know, the saying is, all gave some and some gave all. I was very lucky to, uh, in 92, do a USO tour. I jokingly say that I was uh, I was in the service for uh, 49 days and I retired a captain in the Air Force. <laughs> wow. <laughs> how could that be? Said, how could that be? Uh, when you're in the USO and you do shows, you're given the honorary title of captain. <laughs> <laughs> retired a captain. We did 45 shows in 49 days in England, Iceland, Germany, Wales, ben- Belgium, and the Netherlands. And we did shows everything from uh, tennis courts to open fields to uh, to mess halls. Uh, and to see these men and women who are just giving so much of themselves for so many years uh, it, it was just a blessing to do this for them. And there were some who would say, you know, where's your next show? What, what base? And we would tell them, and they would say, we're going to get a, a free one-day pass, and we're going to come see your show again. That's how much they enjoyed uh, just having, it was called the American Comedy and Variety Show. Mm-hmm. That's just how much they enjoyed having live American entertainment out there on those bases in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah, God bless them because they uh, uh, they deserve all the credit and all our prayers. And I appreciate that you perform for our troops, though. Like, I mean, when it comes down to it, it don't matter what political side you're on or, like, where you came from or whatever. When it comes to those guys and gals, That's like, right. they they're doing something that like, I feel like it doesn't get appreciated enough. You know, I've I've always felt strongly about the military, even though I've never been in service myself. It's the fact that I grew up around 
a lot of military people, like from my parents to my aunts, uncles, like you go down the list of people that in my family that's been in the military. My great grandfather fought in World War Two and he fought in Korea. Like and that's what I'm saying. So it's always been like that's always been something important to me because I feel like our veterans don't get treated the way they should. And so if even if it's something as simple as giving them some entertainment or at least just giving them some type of recognition, I feel like yeah. that's important. Absolutely. Like, because a lot of these guys, a lot of these girls, they're going in, they're putting their, they're putting everything on the line. And I feel like like we need to recognize them more. We need to do more for them. And you know, I was actually talking to a um, veteran, and he had did like three tours in Iraq. And he wants to start a program where he's transitioning, you know, people like when they get out and they want to, you know, go back to civilian life. Yeah. He says, you know, help them, you know, get some counseling, help them with their mental health, help them with their physical health, help them kind of, you know, get things together so, you know, they don't end up on the streets. And yeah. I, There's a lot of PTSD out there, a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, my wife is a psychologist, and uh, she works at uh, Camp Lejeune. Uh, all the post-traumatic stress disorder that these Marines have, and it's uh, it's tough. It's tough. God bless. Yes. Um, I mean, as a person who's seen three different generations of it, like, like affecting people from, like I said, World War Two to even now, like, mental health is an important thing that needs to be observed in this country for our troops, for our civilians. For our people, I mean, I could be on my soapbox all day about that, but sure. but you know what I mean. Like our people, um, when it comes down to it, charity starts at home, so we need yep. to take care of home. That's that's a saying that I definitely agree with. Yeah, yeah. But with that, I'm gonna go ahead and get off my soapbox. Okay. Because, because we're not here for that. But all right. But yes, thank you to all of our troops. If you are um, if you are a veteran, thank you so much for listening to this and know that you are appreciated sincerely. Yes. Now, back to the comedy veteran. All right. The champion, the myth, the legend, Tommy Moore. I'll tell you a rough story that happened to me. Um, it was, like I said, I used to teach... Uh, comedy and the history of American comedy at Temple University in Philadelphia. And that's where the three books came from. Um, especially the, uh, the second book, Joke Telling 101, is where I talk about how to tell a joke, uh, how to craft a joke, and a lot of stories about comedians and how they tell jokes and how they perform. But that all came from my Temple University course. Now, the first time they wanted me to teach at Temple University, they didn't realize that the first day of the course, 
was the one-year anniversary of 9-11. Now, very serious day. In fact, they were even worried that there might be bomb threats in big buildings anywhere in Philadelphia. Uh, I said, maybe we shouldn't do a comedy uh, class on that day. It's too serious a day. They said, no, let's try it. You know, we may not get too many people come that day because of, of the day that it is, but we'll, we put it in the catalog and let's do it. Okay. So I go into Temple University and there are signs everywhere uh, in case of an emergency. Here's the closest emergency exit. And, oh, uh, and I'm walking down the hallway and I look in the different classes and none of them have people, you know, one of them had two people, one of them had three people, one of them had seven people. I'm like, oh, man, I wonder if anybody's going to show up for my little comedy class. And as I get closer to it, I can hear a murmur coming from the room, like people. And I walked hmm. in, and there were 50 people there. And wow. I said, what? And they said, we just needed to laugh today. And so I did my comedy class and I showed some comedy tapes. The second week, same room, there were 70 people. There were people sitting on the floor. There were people sitting on the windowsills. And the dean came in and said, you can't have this. You know, it's against the fire code. So he moved us to a bigger room. And the third week, there were 100 people. And they moved us to the bigger room they had at Temple. And I taught that course at Temple for very varying uh, types of courses on comedy for about five years. And over and over, always the comment was, thank you because we need to laugh so much. That's true. That's very, very true. You just have a straight up gift, don't you? Well, I don't know if it's a gift, uh, but I know it's a gift for me when I hear people laugh and I knew that uh, I'm putting some good out there. That's the gift to me. I mean, when it comes down to it, though, like, and this is like, this is something I've always believed. Like, I feel like God in the universe places us in different places yeah. in different positions because they want us to make an impact. And it sounds like to me, you've made quite the impact on a lot of people. I tried. I tried. I'm still trying. So I think you're still, I think you're doing it. Heck, you made me laugh. Like, and I was kind of having a hard week, and you're already making me feel better, like, about my week. So, yeah, like, I think it's a gift, man, because, I, like, seriously, like, I'm feeling so much better since I've been having this conversation. This is almost been like last therapy for me. I'm loving the stories. You, you really inspired me to keep going with this podcast that I've been doing. Right. Oh, do it. Yeah, do it. Do it. Do it. It's wonderful that, that, that people have a chance to be on your show and that you have a chance to interview them. That's terrific. I've, I've really been loving doing this. I get to talk to so many people with different stories, uh, like whether it's, you know, it could be the guy down the street or it could be a gentleman like yourself, like I've had some very insightful conversations. Some of them have been funny. Some of them have been sad. Some of them, some of them will be the most unforgettable like conversation I've ever had in my life. Yeah. 
And I everybody's just, got a story. Everybody's got a story. If you if you can find it in him, everybody's got a story. And now I'm talking to a comedy legend. That's funny. <laughs> it's funny how the world works. I'm serious though, but Mr. Moore. I'm sorry. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. I'm sorry. It's a force of habit. I know you told me this before the podcast. <laughs> See, I'm already getting in trouble, y'all. I keep on doing this. Uh, uh, that's okay. But, Tommy, I just want to say, like, thank you so much for giving me this special hour of time, man. Like, I, you, you definitely got to come back. Anytime you need a platform to just talk and you want to share some more stories, because, I mean, seriously, you need to come back. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was fun talking to you, and keep on keeping on, man. Yeah, before you go, let me, uh, like, do you have anything you want to plug? Do you have any, like, anything special you're doing right now, any dates? Well, I got I got the three books, and they're on uh, Amazon and Kindle. The first one's called The PhD in Happiness from the Great Comedians. And what that is is uh, comedians who told me, show business lessons that transferred very nicely into life lessons and how to make you happy. The second book is called Joke Telling 101, How I Never Let School Interfere with My Comedy Education. Mm -hmm. And it's an educational book that teaches you how to tell a joke. Plus, it gives you about 100 of the best jokes that comedians love to tell each other. Plus, it gives you stories about uh, comedians and their experiences on stage. And the third book is called Comedians Telling Tales Out of School, and it's telling some stories that you may never have heard of, stories that are uh, very, very interesting. So all those three books are available on Amazon and Kindle, and I thank you for the opportunity to plug them. Hey, um, anytime you need to plug anything, you write another book, you decide you want to get back on the circuit, whatever you want to do, this platform is for anybody and everybody, and you're somebody I would love to help in any way. Thank you, Anthony. Sincerely. Well, then, ladies and gentlemen, Tommy Moore, a.k.a. the legend, a.k.a. the myth, <laughs> a.k.a. the greatness, a.k.a. just super awesome, and I appreciate it. So with Thank that, you, sir. yes, sir. And with that, this is Anthony Anthem, a.k.a. The Midnight Marauder, a.k.a. TV Ready, a.k.a. Radio Ready, a.k.a. The Hotness, a.k.a. The Coldness, because I'm cool like that, a.k.a. We're done today. (laughs) Thank you, everybody.